Who are you? Oh, who am I? It doesn't matter who I am. Let me try it again. Who are you, stranger? We're off to a good start. A plus podcasting over here. So professional. Hello and welcome to Pontifex. I'm Fry. And I'm Bree, ranking all the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode eight, Pope Alexander the First. All right, the first one. Yes. We got a number. And he is definitely not the most known of the Alexanders, because if you Google Pope Alexander, there is only one that is going to come up, and we will get to him in time, I swear. But it's a long ways off. It's just gonna, you're you're just gonna have to wait, really. If you want to hear all about Pope Alexander VI, you're just gonna have to stick with us. How many Alexanders are there? I want to say six because I don't think anyone would take Nobody wanted Alexander's to name. Yeah, well, because he, he wasn't a good pope. He's going to be one of those, like, big scandal dudes. Ooh. There have been eight popes called Alexander, so... Oh, someone did. Someone followed that. They they did, apparently, and we're going to get... We'll get to them in time, but that's a long way off, so... While we're here in the early, early, early ancient world with no sources, let's jump into the first one of his name. Again, like last week, we have a birthday, even though it's really weird that we have a birthday. He is cited as being born on January 10th, 75 AD, but like I said, this is most definitely not true. I don't know where they think they got this information because a lot of other sources say that his birthday is unknown. And one source that I went to, Catholic365, goes so far as to say, the date of his birth is shrouded in antiquity, which I thought was the most unnecessarily dramatic statement. Shrouded in antiquity. Like, come on. (laughs) That is a choice that they have made. They wanted to be real dramatic. That's fine. Really, really dramatic. Yeah. So I had to leave it in. So if we don't know his birthday, we do know that he was born in Rome and that his father was also called Alexander. And more than that, we can be a little bit more specific because he was born and raised in an area called the Caput Tari, or Head of the Bull which has been fairly, certainly, mostly identified as being the Esquiline Hills. Now, just as an aside, the Esquiline Hill has a bit of a strange history. It's the largest of the seven hills of Rome, and initially it was used as the burial pits for poorer Roman citizens, and was also a popular place of execution. Yeah, that's that's a poltergeist movie waiting to happen right there. It gets worse. Because this is where Nero decides to build his giant golden house, the Domus Aria, after the Great Fire of Rome that we talked about in Peter's episode. Yes. And so, not great. You know, you have the burials, you have the executions, now you have the Great Fire of Rome wiping everything out, and then... You have Nero building a palace of opulence on it, but 
you know, that's not a recipe for disaster. No, no, that's not a horror movie at all. So we can say for sure that by the time that Alexander was born in this area, it was probably fairly affluent. And since he, unlike a lot of the other popes from this time, has no mention of potentially being a slave or a freedman, we can infer that Alexander on the Esquiline Hill probably had a fairly comfortable upbringing and education. So that's something. That's new. It's also entirely possible that Alexander was born into a family that were already Christian. We know for sure that he has been exposed to Christianity fairly early in life, and this is because, according to all of the traditional accounts, Peter became the Bishop of Rome while still in his 20s. Yeah, that would uh, make sense. Imagine some 20-something-year-old bro dude trying to tell you about God. Yeah, he would have had to, at least at this time, been quite the man to be given this title, following people like Peter and Linus and Anacletus as, like, old, wise, and men. He is now in his 20s, and he's making some sort of huge impression to be worthy of that kind of recognition. So it's possible that he's been exposed to the church for his whole life, it's possible that maybe, like, bribery and corruption are also happening, but we don't have any evidence of that. And you don't have any whatever, like, the other one said they converted or came over. Yeah, there's no conversion story for Alexander. It seems that, and especially if he's coming to it in his 20s, to be learned enough to do that, you probably had to come from it either from birth or fairly close. Yeah, for sure. Although... For the sake of being historically accurate, we need to accept that if Pope Evaristus died in 107 and Alexander's birth being in 75, then that would put the start of his papacy at age 32, which, you know, 20s and 30s, it's a distinction without a difference, but it's still extremely young. It's close. Like, I mean, if, if they're like, oh, he's 28 or he's 32, that's kind of close. Yeah, it's a distinction without a difference, but we have to be clear and do our historical homework. So, you know, it's also likely that due to his higher class background, it seems that Alexander had some connections with influential Romans in the imperial court, which is new. So he's not going to get horrifically beheaded later? The silence! <laughs> the horrific silence that followed that! Let's see how that prediction weighs up. <laughs> I'm wrong. That's the wrong sound. <laughs> well, let's see. I won't, I won't give it away any more than I already have, but for now, he's got some ties in the Imperial Court, and there's some vague references to ties to a prefect called Armiter. Is is that is that all vowels that you just said? Ermiter, E R M E. Okay, E R M E T E R, Ermiter. Yeah, I hear it now. So many burks for the Ermiter. This episode's a mess. Okay, so besides Ermiter. There is a tribunal he's also linked with called Quirinius, 
Is that better? Yeah, that's that's more normal. Okay, so good. If this is true, this might have been a reason that Alexander was an appealing candidate for the bishopric, because having some friends in the imperial circle could have positive-reaching consequences for the whole of Christendom. Maybe a little less torture, a little less persecution. Maybe. Actually, this seems like the perfect time to squeeze in a little segment on what's happening for the Christians in the Empire at this point. Because when we started this series, we were looking at Christians who, for the larger Roman world, were cults that were annoying, and according to the Emperor Nero, had burned down over half of Rome. So things are not great for them at this point. And then Nero is followed by people like Domitian, and things are not getting any better because Domitian wants to persecute everyone, including the flies that fly around his office. Listen to Totalis Rankium. Great episode. So things are not getting any better for the Christians at this point. But this is a point where we're entering a new century, and with it comes at least a slight shifting, if you will. So one of the pieces of evidence that we have for this shifting perspective is a letter written by Pliny the Younger, who at the time was the governor of Bithynia to the emperor Trajan. In this letter, Pliny is looking for advice from Trajan on how he should be handling the Christians that are denounced to him. He details out his interrogations for Christians, but he is also asking whether or not simply being a Christian is enough to face punishment. He clearly sees something wrong with being Christian, and he's concerned over what the Christians could become. But he also seems to suggest that simply being Christian was not actually doing any crime to the empire, which suggests at the time that actively rooting out Christians just for the sake of being Christian is something that's maybe not being regarded as highly, or it's not as feverent as maybe it had once been. That's good. It's good not to be persecuted for just existing. Yeah, it's a start, at least. And, I mean, it's not to say that there isn't still a cause for concern, because at this time, being a Christian often came associated with other secret crimes, like cannibalism, which is how they saw the Eucharist. Ah, uh, yes. Good job, you guys. Yep, they're, they, they totally are riding the cannibal line on that one. And they also think that Christians are really big into incest, which comes from Rome's inability to reconcile this Christian idea of everyone being a brother or sister in Christ, even while they're wed. In the, the father thing. They're, they're not able to wrap their head around this one. They also think that Christians are tied to sedition and causing disruption by not participating in traditional festivals and sacrificial rituals. So, like, there's still reason to be concerned about these Christians. He's just also saying, like, is it enough that they're just a Christian? So Pliny asks in his letter, If a man has once been a Christian, does it do to him no good to have ceased to be one, whether the name itself, even without offenses, or only the offenses associated with the name are to be punished? Once you go Christian, you don't come back? Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, he's asking whether or not simply denying that being a Christian is enough to potentially save them. Like, if people are being simply persecuted 
for existing as a Christian or being called a Christian, Pliny states that many people of every age and rank in society are going to be endangered, and he sees this as a problem. Yeah, burn the witch. Yeah, like, it would be an easy thing to go, oh, he's a Christian, and if the people can't say, no, I'm not a Christian, like, that is dangerous, right? So, I mean, we can't exactly say that Pliny is advocating for the Christians, or that he's really on the side of temperance, but it at least shows that people are starting to ask the question about whether or not simply existing as a Christian is worthy of death. He's written this letter, and by the way, Trajan's response to Pliny is dismissive. He basically tells him to use his own discretion because all and all he says in the letter is that make it a way of policy to not seek out Christians purely for persecution. Anonymous accusations shouldn't be accounted for, but that if someone is found out to be a Christian, they do have to face punishment. Yeah. So the key one that we have to take away from this as being different is the do not seek out Christians bit. Clearly, at this point, the Empire is not all that interested in creating an officially delineated Christian policy. And also, Trajan is probably way too busy to deal with letters from Pliny. This is not the only one, and he's fairly dismissive generally, so. But overall, this cooling of the persecution, the phrasing, and all of this change in thought continues from Trajan through to Hadrian, who is indifferent enough about Christianity that he starts to grant some leniency as long as Christians aren't stirring up violence or discord, and this allows Christians to really start somewhat externally presenting and growing within the empire because they don't really have to be a secret anymore. No dark basements. Yeah, they're kind of moving away from the whole down-low sort of thing, but this is also the time that we're going to see Christians and Jews slowly start to get on this path of divergence from one another. But Hadrian's going to come way after Alexander's time, so we'll deal with this later as it actually happens in our story. So back to Alexander and his very young papacy. So the first thing that makes Alexander unique as an early pope is that in some sources, he is credited of having a vision of the infant Christ. Okay. Visions of the infant Christ are not as common as like Marian visions or visions of the adult Jesus, but they're still fairly common amongst saints like St. Rose of Lima and St. Teresa of Avila in the 16th century and St. Anthony of Padua in the 13th century. No one's finding baby Jesus in their bread. No, no they're not. And they're kind of like the rare Pokemon card of the visions in the Catholic Church, if you will. Since usually the seer is actually holding baby Jesus within their arms, and so this is a really personal, personal type of vision that they're having, And since he's appearing in his weakness and helplessness as an infant, he's disarming the fear of his justice with his littleness, and so... He can't hold his head up? Yeah, yeah, so he's he's coming to them in a form that's not like, I could condemn you forever. No, he's got that funny baby head that's like, flopping around. Yeah, yeah, he's, um, he's coming to you vulnerable. In his meditation, the eternal word becomes little, 
St. Alphonsus Licuri comments on this idea by saying, If the Redeemer had come to be feared and respected by men, he would have come as a full-grown man with royal dignity. But because he came to gain our love, he chose to come and show himself as an infant, and the poorest of infants, born in a cold stable between two animals, laid in a manger on straw, without clothing or fire to warm his shivering limbs. Thus he would be born, who willed to be loved and not feared. Jesus is basically a cat who has learned to scream like a baby. Yep, and that this is this is how he comes to Alexander. And Alexander's like, oh, I need to adopt seven of these. Well, I mean, okay, so here's the thing about this. If this happened to Alexander, especially so early in the church before the precedence of visions are being kind of set, this is really remarkable. But other than saying he had a vision of the infant Christ, there is not really a single source that elaborates on what happened or what he claimed and so doubt on the whole thing, you know. In the 1960s, Pope John XXIII actually removes the story of Alexander's vision from the accepted canonical Catholic history. Oh! Yeah, they're, they're not buying it either, so maybe baby Jesus? Maybe not. I like the story. It may be the first vision of a baby Jesus ever, so I'd like to say it happened. That's a fair assessment. I mean... I think Pontifax has decided that it's happened, so... I'm sorry, John the 23rd. Yeah, we're... <laughs> this is gonna count against you when we get to you? We are undoing your strike through of this baby Jesus comment. The HTML has been edited. We now have to go back to that whole same pattern of convenient contributions and additions on the early church, you know, for that apostolic succession thing that we've been talking about. The sources tell us that Alexander actually did contribute some things to the church that remains as lasting legacy. Of course they do. First off, the Liber Pontificalis tells us that Alexander was the first person to add the Qui Pridi into the Liturgy of Mass, which is an account of the Last Supper and the Eucharist, which is recited for the consecration of the bread. Oh, okay. Middle end bit. I'm not going to try the Latin here, but the phrasing basically says, who, the day before he suffered, took bread into his holy and venerable hands, with eyes lifted up towards heaven unto thee, O God, his almighty Father, giving thanks to thee, did bless, break, and give unto his disciples, saying, Take and eat ye all of this, for this is my body, which will be given up for you. Yep, not at all steering away from that cannibalism stuff, just yeah. driving straight into it. They are doubling down, and this is coming straight from Pope Alexander. Double down on the cannibalism. But again, historians and Catholic scholars debate the accuracy of this, and they call it the agenda of the Liber Pontificalis. Oh, now now that big book, that big book has an agenda now? It has an agenda to, to reinforce the apostolic succession that every pope has done something. That's its agenda. It's a pretty clear it's agenda. It's a pretty soft agenda. It's not hurting anybody. It's. I don't think it is. It's giving us things to talk about, because otherwise we'd have nothing to talk about. Yeah, Alexander, maybe he saw baby Jesus. Okay, he has more than one contribution, so, I mean, they argue that this is also not true and also didn't come from him. The Liber Pontificalis says it has 
so we will go with it. So this is that he is the first to introduce the custom of blessing water mixed with salt for the use in purification and blessing of Christian homes to protect from evil spirits. Oh, that's that's different and interesting. Yeah, he's also credited for combining this blessed water and sacramental wine to consecrate it for the Eucharist as well. Well, that's just more cannibalism. Yep. And so, I, you know, he's clearly giving significant developments and contribution to the early church with cannibalism. <laughs> Someone's going to get mad at us. People are going to get so mad. But, hey, the Romans said it first. We're just citing it back. Taking it up with Emperor Domitian. No, it's it not be... even supposed to be symbolic. My dad's like, yeah. no, it's actual cannibalism. And I'm like, whoa, dad, back off. Slow your roll. <laughs> oh, dad. Deacon dad, what you doing? <laughs> Can we call him Deacon dad on this now? I should. We We might as well. Oh, good. Good. Okay. So I could say, oh, Deacon dad. Okay. Great. I'm very happy about this. So. It's been a secret this whole time. <laughs> I'm so happy. Don't excommunicate him, please. It's not his fault. <laughs> My views are not necessarily the views of Deacon Dad. We're not giving Deacon Dad a name. He's just Deacon Dad. Nobody will ever know. So, Alexander, these are the things he may or may not have done. But what we can say for sure that he did mostly relative confidence, is that he ordained six priests, two deacons, and five bishops. Very exciting. Yeah, still exciting. I mean, they gotta get their numbers up. Yeah, uh, so leading on to the... <laughs> this is this is where your question from earlier is going to come uh, in. Oh, yes. Because the, was he horrifically beheaded? Okay, so at some point, probably through his court connections... Alexander converts a Roman governor by the name of Hermes to Christianity by performing a miracle. He resurrects Hermes' deceased only son. How deceased? So deceased. It's it's pretty substantial because they clearly thought so too. I just want to know was like it was like 2 days or was it like a year? Um I think he was Pretty dead. If I like, I read the source about it, and he—it sounded like he was like dead, dead, like at least a week, dead, dead. Yeah, yeah. So they they take this as you know a pretty big deal, and not only does he convert Hermes, but he converts Hermes' entire household, which is reported to be about fifteen hundred people when you include all the servants and the government officials under his jurisdiction. That is a lot. Yeah. Especially when, I assume, people in the government don't want to be like, yeah, I'm Christian. Yeah, but, you know, they just watched a guy resurrect a dead man. So, you know. Remember when I said that emperors were starting to shift away from active Christian persecution unless Christians were breaking laws or causing unrest? Yeah, I feel like converting an entire 1,500-person household is some sort of unrest it's a big unrest and so alexander gets thrown into jail other sources say that he's jailed for preaching in public but if you've just made 1500 converts anything you say to them is pretty much preaching in public so <laughs> yeah it's yeah you could just be like hey how's your wife 
oh, you're preaching in public. But he's in prison, and he's not quite done yet, because while he's in prison... Does he convert the whole prison? Well, he converts his jailer, Quirinus of Naos, and his daughter, Belbina. <laughs> Belbina. And this is important mainly because they will both be later canonized by the church, so... Oh, are they saints? Saint Belbina? Saint Belbina. I don't know what... What is she, was she the saint of? Cheese? <laughs> I don't know if she's a patron saint, but I'm going to look her up. Balbina the Virgin. Oh. Oh. Yeah. I don't like that name. Yep. Yeah. She's uh she's martyred later on and so yep. She she is converted by Pope Alexander and they will be martyred later after things that we're going to talk about. So he's converted his jailer and the daughter of the jailer and this has sealed his fate because he is too compelling and too charismatic for the christians rolling nat 20s all over the place here yep yep he is he's got his charisma modifier that is like a plus eight so he is sentenced to death and he will be killed but not before converting two other criminals in the jail, who will later be known as the Martyrs of Ostia. They don't even get names. They're just lumped together. Well, yeah, pretty much. We'll get to that a little bit. Accounts of Alexander's actual execution are a bit jumbled, but the most conventional and simple story is that he was martyred by decapitation. Oh my god. On the Via Nomentana in Rome. The reason for thinking this is also the reason that we have to cast doubt on it, which is a little convoluted, but it'll make sense in a moment. In 1855, a discovery was made of an underground cavern that ran along parts of the Via Nomentana, and this is now what makes up the Roman catacombs. And Christian catacombs have been discovered like this along the Appian Way, the Via Labicana, Via Tibertina, and the Via Ostiense. In the one along the Via Nomentana, three bodies were discovered at what is called the Seventh Milestone. The bodies were marked as being Alexander, Aventius, and Theodolus, and by all reckoning, these three men were killed together. Now, Aventius and Theodolus were known to be priests in Rome, so it's entirely possible that they could have been imprisoned with Alexander and then martyred on the same day, so this could be Alexander. And there's a lot of people who think that this Alexander is the Pope Alexander, but other people think that it is also not, because in 834, there are records that the remains of Pope Alexander were transferred to Friesing, Bavaria in Germany, and if that's the case, they couldn't have been the remains found in Rome in the catacomb, so... There's just Pope bones all over the place. Yeah, we don't know which Pope bones are his Pope bones, but those remains, by the way, um, the ones that were found in the Via Nomentana, are at the Church of Santa Sabina in Rome. And the three share a feast day together on May 3rd, the supposed date of their execution. So it's called the Feast of Saints Alexander, Aventius, and Theodolus Martyrs. But it doesn't actually refer to this Alexander being Pope Alexander. And so since 1960, Pope Alexander is not listed as a martyr on the canon mass or in the martyrology, since no one is entirely sure if this is Pope Alexander or not. But he still gets mentioned as just Alexander with the other two, just not as Pope. So if this is the same guy, it's 
he's there anyways, so. They're just making sure, in case that was a very popular name back then. Yeah, and I don't imagine it was the way that it is now, but I would definitely like to think, based on your question at the beginning, that he was this one, so that he was beheaded. (laughs) Suddenly beheaded. Yeah, it just fits way too well. Let's see how he does when we rate him. All right. Papatum infallium. His overall success of the papacy. Well, he's converting people like crazy. Yeah, that was a lot of people. Yeah, he's converting people in large numbers. He's converting high up people, which is also kind of a thing. Like, it's not just your everyday people on the street. He's converting Roman influential people. Well, I mean, he's performing miracles, and I think the second you see a miracle, you're like, probably convert. Yeah, I would think so. And then he also introduces the Quay Pretty, which is the Eucharist into the Liturgy of Mass, which is something they still do. Hardcore still do. Every time. Yep. You could set your watch to it. He's also uh, attributed to the introduction of that blessed water and salt to bless homes and that so what do you think he deserves for this it's it's not a whole lot it's not a ton but like let's give him a five like a middling middling number because he's not doing a little and he's not doing a ton but he's also not not doing stuff yeah i mean i'm gonna i'm gonna give him a three just for the eucharist because that's a big one And I'm going to give him a point for the conversion. So I'm going to give him four. So that gives him a nine for Papatum Infallium. Fructus Prohibitum? You can't keep a good man down when it comes to converting. I mean... Yeah, I don't think we can count conversions for two. We could give him points potentially for being, like, super brazen with his conversions and that he's pissing off the Imperial leaders. But I thought that was just Tuesday. It It is, but this is the point where they're starting to maybe leave him alone, and he's... So maybe, like, a half point? Can we give him a half point? We could give him a half point together and make it a one. A whole one, yes. Okay, so he'll get a one for Fructus Prohibitum, just for pissing off people who are finally leaving them alone. Seculari Impactum. Again, here we come back to the conversions. He's He's bringing in a lot of people to the church. He is also leading the church at the moment that Christians are able to start presenting themselves as He's Christians. He's still only really impacting Rome, though, and not yeah. the broader world as a whole. But that's the way that it's going to be for quite a while. So do we judge him based on what we know comes in the future, or do we judge him based on his context? Because he still, like, he is leading the church when they're coming out of secrecy, and he does end up pissing people off for that, but... This is a moment where we start to see a public Christian identity. That's true. Uh, I don't know. Like, do we make it just his world or do we make it the world? Because I guess technically the ones who impact the whole world are impacting it because of the technology that we have. Mm-hmm. So I don't think we can we can really like we're we're judging them based on people outside of the church, really, yeah. in this category. So. I think we can only we can only really judge him based on what his world would have been because it's only as big as it could have been. Mm-hmm. It's not like he could have, you know, even just gone to Greece for a little bit. Aside from letters that we may or may not have, he's still 
he's still leading something that's coming out in the world and people are starting to take notice. He definitely cannot tweet Storm. No, he cannot. And I mean, he doesn't have a Twitter like the current Pope does. Hi, Francis. Follow me back. <laughs> I don't think Francis is going to follow us back. I would die. I know you would. You would 100% die immediately. You would hear me squeal from here to there. So do we give him a point for the identity thing? I think, I think I'm going to give him at least one for the, the start of the Christian presentation to the world. Give him probably like a three. Okay. So you want to give him a three? Yeah. Okay. I'll give him a one because I think then a four total is a good, a good representation of that. So we'll give him a four for Secularis Impactum. Fossium Sanctus. Okay. Are you ready for... We have one picture. Oh, just the one? There's no other interpretations? If you Google Pope Alexander, all you're going to get is Pope Alexander VI, which is annoying as hell. And even in, like, books and sources, there is one photo that just gets shared around a lot. So it's definitely different than the ones we've looked at before. So you're going to have some description to do here. All right. This is not a contemporary picture either. None of them really are, but we know that this one's from the 8th century. It's in a fresco at the Church of Santa Maria Antiqua. So, for context, here you go. This is very different. Describe. Oh, this is like some sort of Byzantine wall art. Yes, kind of, yeah. You know what I mean, maybe? Yeah, yeah, it totally has that, that look to it. Oh, uh, wow. So the first thing I noticed was his feet, which is not <laughs> not the part of the photo I'm supposed to be looking at. This isn't whatever the Latin word for foot is. Those sandals look really, really painful. <laughs> they are the worst looking flip-flops I have ever seen on a human being. He's real young. Yeah, he's very young. Part of the problem is, is that part of his face is ripped off. Smushy. Yeah. <laughs> it's not there anymore. Well, you you can't expect it to be. He's got short brown hair, maybe, or he's got this long piece maybe sticking out the side. Well, what's he's got the black piece that's kind of sticking out the side, too. So Yeah, I think that is just some ripped off part, but you can see that he's kind of got a mullet thing, possibly, in the back there. That was very in fashion in Rome, so... The mullet? Yeah, for a while there, Roman emperors had mullets for a while, so... I mean, that's, it's entirely possible. He's got some, he's definitely got some uh, mutton chops going on there that you can see, kind of. He kind of looks like, um, the bad guy from Frozen. Hans, yes he does! <laughs> oh, his points just went up. <laughs> oh, so, <laughs> I love Hans. Okay, well, so what do you want to give him out of ten for that? Because I'm, for the Disney reference... I'm going up, so. So, um, I'll give him, like, a, that's just, like, a seven. I can give him a seven. Okay, I was gonna give him a seven, so that gives him a total for Facium Sanctus as 3.5. For his face. That is definitely our highest score for that category so far, so. Tempest Pontificus. Okay, so Eusebius says he reigned, he was pope for 10 years. Potential dates are like 
106 to 115, 109 to 116, 108 to 119. Officially, we're going to look at about 107 and the death of Evaristus to 115, which gives us eight years for a nice, neat score of two. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round! So, is he a saint? Yes, he is still considered a saint because he still gets that May 3rd feast day along with Aventus and Theodolus, but he doesn't get a feast day of his own, so we're, we're counting it as a saint. Uh, he is not the current, a current saint of anything. No? Do you, do you want to make him a patron saint of something? Well, now I have to think. He's, uh, he is the patron saint of flip flops. <laughs> The patron saint of painful flip-flops, how about? Or or he's the patron saint of, of flip-flops, and just like when with Peter, if you and if you are having foot problems because of your <laughs> flip-flops, you can call on him and not Peter. I just okay, when I was in high school, we went to Mexico and some kid decided while we were um scaling the pyramids to wear his flip-flops oh no and 100 percent took off like three of his toenails he deserved it i'm sorry anybody who wears flip-flops for anything like you're already pushing it but to do it then yeah i have no sympathy for this person i hope your toenails never grew back i want you to remember you're stupid <laughs> okay so that leaves us with one final question does he have enough papal pizzazziness, that extra important contribution, that personality, that interesting story that makes him worthy of a papal bull? What do you think? You know, I kind of want to give it to him. Okay, give me your reasons. Well, uh, he's been, he's been pissing people off. He has a force of personality. He does. He definitely does have a, a force of personality. I'm not as convinced. I, I do like the idea of him being the first real young pope because that's different and we won't see a lot of that. That makes him unique. I don't think his story is particularly compelling. So, I don't know. I'm not inclined to give it to him. But if you are... We could make him a dice roll. Uh, let's do the dice roll. Let's do our right. first dice roll. Divine intervention. So again, if you, don't read it out yet. Okay. <laughs> if it is a one through ten, he does not get a papal bull. He goes straight to purgatory. If he gets an eleven to twenty, he is bull worthy. So what is the result? He got an eighteen. Oh, that is very bull-worthy. Okay, well, congratulations, Alexander. Your charisma modifier definitely helped you out there. Wow, okay, so our patron saint of flip-flops is moving on. <laughs> you know, I am content with that decision. I don't know how well he's going to do in the finals. I don't either, but some people want Linus to go to the finals as well, so... And I really liked Linus. I'm not going to lie. Linus was fun. So I thought his story was better than Alexander, but the dice have rolled and they have spoken. Divine intervention has happened. So I'm good with it. Mm -hmm. 
Which means all we're left with now is some thank yous to make, because we've got a lot of them. Man. First of all, at time of recording, this is, we are recording on our two-week anniversary of launching the podcast. So episode four just went out, which is cool. And we've already broken a thousand downloads. And that's amazing. You guys rock. Thank you so much for all of our listeners. Thank you to everyone who has liked our page, retweeted our tweets, who have left us ratings and reviews on iTunes already. Like, super, super awesome. Oh, and all the commentary we're getting? Emails? Yeah. That's fun. Someone told us our Latin was wrong. Yes. <laughs> yes, they did. And we don't speak Latin, but we're going to try. So, yeah. Um, We also definitely need to thank Rex Factor and Totalis Rankium again. And they both, on their most recent episodes, have talked about us and told people about our show and told them to come listen so thank you guys that is awesome uh the history of ancient greece has been supporting every episode we've done which is amazing thank you ryan you are a legend uh flashpoint history thank you so much for supporting our show putting it out there and making sure to give us a rating that was awesome the age of victoria podcast I, I had not been in contact with you guys yet, and you still were tweeting about us, and that's awesome, and now I'm a super fan listening to all of the episodes, so thank you. And of course, Scott Rowland and the Roman and Byzantine History Group on Facebook. Thank you all, and so many more. Seriously, the amount of people who have been awesome in the last two weeks is just ridiculous. We have so many people to thank that I hope... I'm not leaving anyone out. How long is that document now? Oh, there are so many names on this document. Just go through each episode and listen to how many people we have to thank for just being legit awesome, super supportive people, podcasts supporting podcasts, listeners who have already got our back. That is, it is just the coolest thing. So, you know, it just makes my heart so happy, and and that just means there will be so many more popes to come in the future. So thank you all. Yeah, we'll keep poping, keep on poping. That is not coming out right at all. Can't stop, won't stop poping, poping, poping. <laughs> oh God. Okay. Well, with that. No, hang on, hang on, hang on. I got a plug. Got to be like, hey, hey. Come to our Twitters and our Facebook. I mean, okay, so, like, you're supporting us and everything, right? Which is awesome. But please, please, we like, we literally love just getting, like, people talking to us. It is mm -hmm. fun. We like to just look at it and bask in your warm glow. <laughs> everything about it is great. Please, please contact us on Twitter or Facebook. We are at PontifexPod. You can also email us we've gotten several long-form emails that have just been fantastic yep. just great great stuff in them but that is at pontifexpod at gmail.com yeah just please reach out we're here we're not going to bite you i promise no cannibalism <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know we, we have we'll make our best effort to respond to everything that comes our way for real I, I think I am, like, caught up, and I have responded to everyone, so keep sending in your messages. We love them. And with that, I suppose we say thank you and goodbye. Goodbye. Ooh, we switched roles there. <laughs> it's fine. Mm -hmm.